0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to another edition of The Minefield, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. And as that sort of Olympic glow starts to fade and we return to the darkness of normal life i suppose the show will in some ways reflect that although scott did try fairly determinedly to remove any olympic glow from the show didn't he up until now so did you feel any of it by the end of the olympics sorry well italy my name scott stevens is Did I mean, you feel any of it Scott?
2: the only thing that i watched was um was men and women's basketball so the glow from seeing patty mills who is without question our greatest ever basketballer. As I believe, I predicted, Waleed, that his game was uniquely suited, especially to the way that international basketball is being played at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, I thought he, was, he was astonishing. Better than uh, Andrew Gaze. Uh, greatest oh, ever basketballer. This is a big call. Un- undoubtedly. Look, for this simple reason. Firstly, point guards of Patty Mills's size are a dying breed. And yet his ability to get towards the rim... To be able to aggressively attack the basket and then have the handles available to be able to do something once he gets there. that I mean that itself is quite remarkable. Uh, we haven't seen for a long time because in the NBA there's not much value for it. We haven't seen for a while his mid-range skill instead of you know just going to the basket or just opening up from the three-point line. Uh, being able to take a shot from that mid range, which was vital to Australia's success. Uh, and then of course his prodigious capacity from three point look, it was it was glorious. It was Australia's first ever medal in Olympic basketball. Uh, that that for me was particularly moving.
1: There you go it's got, got is to that, with some is, Olympic dust. Yes. yes. Is that is that glow enough for you? I or? mean it, I feel sad that there's so much more that you missed out on. <laughs> but but it'll do. Like I'm, I'll take that you have but finally. But I missed everything
2: concerned. else joyfully. But I missed everything else joyfully. Yeah, but, but that's my, you didn't yeah.
1: know what you missed out on, which is fine. Yeah, probably. But it's just. Uh, I don't know. One day we're going to have a proper conversation about this whole Olympic thing. Yeah, we should. Probably off air. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think right, Sinead okay, would prefer no. <laughs> that. But uh, <laughs> but one day we'll do it. All right. So it's back to the real world. <laughs> And fair to say that, well, I think one of the reasons actually that the Olympics were so great for so many people was that the real world emphatically isn't at the moment Mm. um, in so many ways. And the, what shall we say, civic, ethical issues that continue to be thrown up in this age of pandemic, they've they've certainly not gone away. In fact, they've only really picked up. Um, They've continued to pace. What are we going to pick on today?
2: Well, it seems to me that... What we're going to do over the next few weeks, I'm not entirely sure, I don't think you are either, if it's going to be sequential or if it's going to be intermittent. We're, we're going to try to take a bit of a read on the way that the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting, eroding, changing, maybe simply transforming our conception of certain habits, practices, expectations that are inherent to democratic life now some of these might be a democratic life in the sense that they really do attend to our relationship to the state to our elected leaders and to public policy Uh, but some of these um, democratic habits dispositions will also be in our daily interactions with equal others so it's it's going to be really interesting to see exactly how this all works out i guess one of the things that i've been really eager to discuss with you, Willie, because I've, I'm I'm not entirely sure what you think about this. To be perfectly honest, I'm not entirely sure what I think about it either. Um, we have seen. Okay, let me take one step back. One of my favorite political theorists uh, admitted about 15 years ago that liberalism is a terrific form of political life, a conducive political order when prosperity is at a high, everybody's happy, and war is nowhere on the horizon. In other words, liberalism is politics for the good times. But as soon as something like crisis hits, as soon as there is a threat greater than, say, the abuse of state power on the horizon, as soon as things get really serious, another form of politics begins to assert itself. And people living in liberal political orders tend to want that other form of politics to assert itself. Um if it's a form of economic disaster, then we no longer want a small receding limited government. We want a huge government that's going to come in and save everyone's bacon. Uh, if it's uh, the threat of say terrorism or if war's on the horizon, then suddenly we want the police state to reassert itself I've been wondering I've been worried that some of the most effective mechanisms that have been used by advanced democracies and fledgling democracies all around the world to try to protect and safeguard the health and safety of their respective publics, most of those mechanisms that have been used are arguably the least democratic. In other words, they have come in the form of fairly aggressive heavy-handed, one-size-fits-all measures. So this might be the locking down of uh, communities and cities. This might be the imposition of borders, uh, international borders, as well as borders within nations. These might be the reliance on experts and expert advice as opposed to uh, partisan and bipartisan uh, um, committees formed by elected representatives. Um, mm, these... I'm not sure on that last point you make, but up until yeah, then, I yeah. think everything you've said is right. Yeah. Okay, well, well let's let us come to that, though, in just a second, because I, I do think one of the things that the COVID-19 pandemic has done is it's accelerated, it's massively accelerated, the speed at which decisions need to be made. And usually decisions don't have to be made at this kind of speed and with this little deliberation in times other than during times of war. And also this one. little experience. I
1: think that's the other element of it. Okay. Decision makers have never seen anything like this. and so I think that's a really crucial point. Yes. Yeah. So much of what they are trying to
2: decide is unguessable. Can I then ask you something about that? Yeah. Because I, I think you're right. I think the only way for the public and for politicians to comport themselves when it comes to the pandemic is is to do so with a kind of radical humility. Um, We're going to try things. We're going to try things within our current capacity. We're going to try things within our given experience. We're going to try things within our appropriate expertise. God knows we're going to get things wrong. We're going to make mistakes. Hopefully, we'll have the ability to learn from those mistakes and then transmit those learnings on to others. I'm wondering, though, whether because there's so little experience in dealing with anything like this, I'm wondering if part of what's often been criticized is the lack of accountability or the lack of transparency. Do you think this is a kind of... I really do want to try to put the best possible spin on this, but this maybe stems from or is an expression of a desire to cover the extent, to cover up or to conceal the extent of those mistakes, the extent of the learnings that are being had all the time in the knowledge that okay once the worst of it is passed then there's going to be a full reckoning but we just need to get through the worst of it first and then we can kind of open up the books and show all the mistakes that have been made i mean do you think do, do you think there's this is a kind of backwards admission of humility in the sense that the government has to project a certain air of competence otherwise people simply won't trust that the right decisions are in fact being made
1: I really don't know how to respond to this because I think it's it, not a criticism, by the way. I no, 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 I'm not taking it that way. I'm just uh, even just the observation. I actually don't know quite how to respond because I feel like multiple contra- apparently contradictory things seem true at once here,
0: hmm.
1: and that maybe maybe that's because it, it's all happened in phases. So uh, I remember on the, at the early onset of the pandemic being struck. by just by the level of humility of our leaders, I have a vivid memory. I hope I haven't imagined this. I have a vivid memory of a a press conference that Scott Morrison gave uh, with Brendan Murphy, who at the time was the chief medical officer. And it was – you remember they were just revealing that plan for – how the whole country was going to exit lockdown and when domestic flights would come back and all this sort mm. of thing. And there was three or four stages. And they said, you know, the point at which your city reaches each of those stages will be the call of your state government, but this is the overall plan and all that sort of stuff. And it all kind of got derailed because then a second wave happened in Melbourne. So at least in yeah. Melbourne, it got derailed very quickly. And it sort of made the, that overall national picture complicated because suddenly a, a major city was was going through something that took it a long way backwards. So I I remember that day and I remember that press conference quite quite vividly. And I've just, I've got this image in my mind of Scott Morrison saying, you know, there will be outbreaks, mistakes will be made, everyone is doing their best. Mm. And I just thought I'd never really heard a a leader of any government in Australia say something like that, that, that we're all trying guys you know, and and we'll get things wrong, but we're really doing our best. And it felt completely of a piece with the moment. There was something about that coming together of the early stage of the pandemic that I think lasted even up to that point and yeah, that I think, I think was right. embodied in it. So, And, and if you... Sit and
2: watch. Press Can I just talk? add a quick footnote to that, though, yeah. lead? I think the other aspect of that, which was so crucial, I don't think it should be minimized, was the lack of a preparedness on the part of the opposition to pounce at that early stage and the media on any mistake. And the media, I think that's yes. So, yes, so fast right.
1: forward now, right? Hmm. I don't know. I know I keep talking about this off air, and I may have said some of this on air. So apologies if I'm repeating myself. But the the classic case for me is to imagine the scenarios surrounding the ATAGI advice on AstraZeneca. Mm. right? Now, so, so take that. ATAGI is giving advice on AstraZeneca. They are giving it on the basis of the risk posed to each individual citizen as against their risk from COVID. And they come up with a recommendation that mRNA vaccines are preferred. Uh, and the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is not preferred if you're under a certain age because of the risk profile. Um, now, as we've discussed on this show before, that's not epidemiological advice. Hmm. That That is purely the advice that – it's like the advice that a doctor would give to an individual patient um, who and where that doctor is an expert in immunisation and vaccines. Hmm. But it is not a big picture decision about what the right policy is for the country to make – in the context of a pandemic, even if we are in a zero COVID environment at the moment in Australia, or at that moment in Australia, in other words, what I'm saying is that advice doesn't determine things. That's something to be considered, and the decision remains for government taking in all kinds of other factors that it is not a target's job to consider. Right? Yep. We agreed so far. Absolutely. Okay. So actually, whenever we hear leaders say, "I'm just following the health advice," as I spoke hmm. to an epidemiologist last night, and made this point, they should never be saying, "I just followed the advice," because they've got other things to consider. They should be saying, "I've considered the advice and then made this decision." Right? That's actually what should be happening here. But then I imagine that scenario. So if you're the federal government and you get that advice, you're dealing with a situation that is unknowable to you because you've never been here before. It looks promising in the moment because there's no transmission in Australia, but you don't really know how quickly or how likely an outbreak like the one we're seeing in Sydney right now could happen. Mm. And so you're kind of a little bit in the dark.
2: But There was also precedent and example from the response that other nations, especially European nations, were taking surrounding AstraZeneca. So it, only briefly, uh, they, they sort oh, of paused yes, for a bit. And then, that's
1: right. And, then and they're very different environments because they yes, had they transmission. Are. Okay. Well, all that granted. So anyway, I would say it is utterly defensible. In fact, I would say it is the decision that I think would have been a better decision for the federal government at that point to say, we're proceeding with AstraZeneca anyway. Because although the ATAGI advice is the ATAGI advice, it's not epidemiological advice, and I have to make what is ultimately an epidemiological decision, and so I'm going to proceed with it. I think that would have been utterly defensible. But I know 100%, and you surely know just as confidently, that had the Prime Minister done that, what would have happened... Upon the first death of a, yes, a young Australian exactly. from blood clotting, is there yep. would have been outrage? There would have been all kinds of howls of protestation. The media scrum would have, you know, gathered around the prime minister in like a, like a, a heaving pack it would have been
2: merciless and, and it, i think almost entirely unwarranted
1: yes and it would have been prime minister do you have blood on your hands do you have yeah, blood on right. your hands do you have blood that's on right. your hands why didn't you take the utt advice etc that would have been the way it played out now obviously this is a counterfactual you could argue i don't know that would have happened does anyone seriously think that wouldn't have happened i i i don't know i've not spoken to a single journalist about this who thinks that wouldn't have happened and <laughs> if Journalists seem to think that's what would have happened, then I think it's pretty likely that's how they would have behaved, right? So in other words, what's, what's going on there is a bit of what you're describing, that there might be an epistemic humility that's required of our leaders in this moment, but it's far from clear that it's an epistemic humility that the media would have tolerated. And then perhaps via the media, the public would have tolerated. Although Mm. sometimes I think the public is more nuanced in its understanding of things than the media tends to be. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this is why I don't know how to respond to your observation that this sort of humility is something that is missing in action. Because I actually think it's there, but I do wonder whether or not the structures and the the inherent practices and mechanisms of democracy – Have sort of forced us to push it away, yeah, right. Because of the mechanisms of accountability, kind of presuppose a level of knowledge um, and competence about government that we demand, even where it might be unreasonable to demand it. And and I think this actually surrounds a whole lot of things, including I would say the vaccine rollout. Although I agree there have been problems with it, I don't personally think it's been as bad as the public discourse alleged it has been. And you see this when you compare it, for example, to New Zealand or something like that.
2: Yeah. So This is, this is so interesting to me, related. and I'm really glad that you've taken it down this path. I, I should also point out, just because I, I'm never going to bypass or pass up an opportunity to gloat when you've made an admission uh, that I'm right when you've spent so many... <laughs> episodes trying to convince me that I'm wrong. Um, I mean, look, I, I have actually tried to convince you in the past that this has been one of the media's persistent failures in its understanding of the way that it conducts its, its, uh, its role in trying to hold governments to account, that the media has most often cast itself in the role of a kind of opposition in permanence ever since the mid-1970s. And what it's failed to do, I think, is to recognize the proper telos, the proper end, the proper goal within a democracy that the media also serves, which isn't simply one of holding government to account. It's absolutely that. But it's but I, I think that kind of relentless practice A fault finding at every moment without recognizing the extent to which mistakes that are being made are themselves teleologically oriented. They are themselves on the way towards something that may well be more hopeful. And I think this this idea of the telos, the teleological orientation of the media within a democracy is the same as that of representative officials, namely the betterment of our common life. And as soon as the media, I think, fails to reflect necessarily, sufficiently, on the extent to which it also serves that hopeful end and isn't just the great debunker, the great naysayer, then I think you have those moments of shared restraint, of the recognition of both political and human limitation and weakness. Can I just – can I ask you though just about one other thing? I'm really eager to get in our guest because I think he's going to bring in a whole new sort of – Shade or dimension uh, to to what we want to discuss here, I, I am really curious, though Willy, about the role that experts have played over the last eighteen months i mean we've we've discussed briefly on the show quite a lot off air about, uh, about the collapse in faith and expertise uh, in the same way that that politicians have had a certain restoration of public. Faith and confidence return to them? Has there also been a degree of restoration of faith and confidence in expertise, but also how does how do experts relate in the process of policy making and democratic deliberation i've got I've got one very specific question I want to put to you, and I hope this makes sense and I hope it sets up what we're going to do in the second half of the show a bit more clearly i've I've been worried in the same way that that reputable media outlets with a very high standard for reporting were used as a kind of ideological weapon at certain uh, at certain stages of the last five years of Western politics. In other words, whether you took the New York Times seriously, for instance, was a litmus test of where you were along the ideological and political spectrum. Um, Whether you thought that New York Times was ideologically driven or was a product of fake news or spinning fake news, that sort of – that positioned you along a certain spectrum of political persuasion. I've I've been wondering, I've been worried that the use of quote-unquote experts both in the media and by politicians has had much the same effect or has had much the same, many of the same dangers. So, for instance, you use experts. You appear with experts. You, quote, unquote, follow expert advice uh, as a way of positioning oneself in relationship to a particular debate uh, and as a way of quashing other forms of advice or other forms of dissent. In the end, however, the experts that have been relied on over the last 18 months have been by and large public health experts. They've been epidemiologists who see the problems that are posed by COVID-19 in a very particular way and see the solutions to those problems in very particular terms. Namely, they tend to be about eradication rather than minimization. They tend to be public health-oriented goals rather than, say, uh, goals that have other uh, social well-being or economic questions involved. I'm I'm worried constantly. And it's the government's job to balance those things, right? Yes. Not only is it the government's job to balance those things, but also, look, one of the things that I love about moral philosophy is there's no such thing as an expert in moral philosophy. You can have someone who is highly literate in the tradition. You can have someone who thinks very, very deeply in, in a virtuosic manner about moral philosophical questions, but you can't be an expert because one of the things that moral philosophy does is it has to try to hold together multiple demands, competing attempts at value. It can't just come down categorically on certain things. It's always in this kind of the role more of a conductor, more of an interpreter, a reader of of a tradition rather than an expert, a master. And it seems to me that that's something that democratic politics and moral philosophy Has in common. One of the failures, I think, of democratic politics and democratic uh, policy making and decision making over the last 18 months has been it's been far too narrow in its reliance on certain experts. It hasn't brought in, if you like, a college of expertise in many circumstances. So it hasn't enlisted, say, faith in community and religious leaders in the way that certain communities are being dealt with, especially when lockdowns are being imposed. What about the reliance on uh, social scientists, on not just legal theorists, but also maybe even moral philosophers? What about uh, experts in technology, surveillance and civic rights? To have that kind of college of expertise, that would, if you like, bring expressions of dissent into the camp, be allowed dissent to be part of the decision-making process rather than the government's line is X. The government is doing X because it's following expert advice from Y. Everyone simply needs to get on board with this because the consequences of us not following this advice are far too catastrophic Hmm. to even be uttered. I think it's it's, it's the way that experts and expertise has been used to quash dissent has actually been quite concerning to me and it's failed to recognize that the proper reckoning with, the proper handling of dissent is one of the conditions of possibility under which forms of democratic consent can be achieved. So that for me, I think has been a less than, I I think it's understandable, but I think it's been a less than beneficial development over the last 18
1: months. Yeah, Uh, yeah. It's a hell of a thing to drop just before we go to the guest. I I think there's something in what you say, but I wonder I wonder if you're overstating your case because governments have had recourse to all kinds of experts and people in different spheres of life in making their decisions. If that were not true, then we would never have exited a lockdown because that would have been the ideal epidemiological position. Right? And I've spoken to epidemiologists who've made this point, who said I would persist yes. with a lockdown until XYZ, but I'm not also an economist and I don't I know there are other things to consider. So and even
2: economics if, and the advice of economists have, have, of course, been a very, very major aspect of right. this. But yeah. I don't think those are the only two games. No, sure.
1: And there have been times that this has been found wanting, particularly in the communication with non-English speaking communities and so on. We're seeing That's that right. in Sydney right now. We saw that in Melbourne's outbreak last year. What's interesting though is we're seeing that the Victorian government has done that a lot better this time. Yes. As right. it goes through a, another outbreak. So there is an appreciation that there are different kinds of experts that you need to rely on for different elements of this and there isn't over time I think people are learning those sorts of things. But I, I'm not I don't think I'm quite willing to go as far as you have just because you when we talk about the fact that most of the responses to something like the pandemic are undemocratic. That's because it really ushers in a kind of emergency politics. Yes. And emergency politics is a bit, that's why the analogies with war, while often overwrought, uh, still have a truth to them. Mm. And when you're in a war, you don't listen to every kind of expert either. There's a certain moment where it's like, this is front of mind and I have to deal with this and then I'll deal with the next thing later. And so it becomes a bit messy. So I think your general idea is right. I think I think there's something there that's really powerful. But I, I just wouldn't quite go as far as you have once you factor in all of the circumstances, the different urgencies of the circumstances, and also just the, the division, the divergence of opinion amongst – those experts that we're talking about. And you saw that play out in the way that New South Wales
2: has responded to things as yes. opposed
1: to other states.
2: But, um, but, but you can also see the way in which the divergence between experts are, is being minimised by politicians. And I think that... look only again, sort of. Only sort of. And again, I understand the reasons for that. I'm not blaming anybody for doing so. I'm not saying that anybody's kind of confecting a kind of false unity. But I do think when you have difference of opinion between experts... Uh, you have divergences of opinion, divergence of value. I think that's actually a very, very important thing for the public to see. It's also one of the ways in which those people who are dissenting – from the ubiquity, the constancy, the rollout of lockdown after lockdown, it's one of the ways in which their own form of dissent, their own dissatisfaction, can be registered when so many of our more representative forms of dissent and disaffection are being minimized at the moment. I'm not sure about that. I think if they saw okay. consensus from experts, they'd be more likely to reconcile themselves with their circumstances. I think that's... that's on, on the face of it and uh, well, all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> oh. In, in Instead, it would be taken as, as a conspiracy of experts. No, but that's yeah. happening anyway. Yeah. In, which all is right. my point.
1: We're yeah. going to have to box on. Because I yeah. I don't want to let that point lie, actually. But I, I'm going to get to the guest. This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. But you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice.
2: Uh, our guest is Shahar Hamieri. He's Associate Professor in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Shahar, thank you so much for joining us on the minefield.
0: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be on the show.
2: Um, so, look, you've, uh, you've heard Walid and I chase a few different rabbits down a few different rabbit holes. Uh, you'll have the opportunity to take up any one of those or none of them uh, in a moment. I did just want to come to you, though, with a fairly blunt question to maybe kick us off. One of the things that has been commented on repeatedly over the last 18 months, and it's something that I've found in some ways quite heartening, is that the pandemic in many ways struck. It hit at a moment of particular weakness for many democracies. One of those forms of weakness is that it hit in a time of what uh, the political theorist John Keane has called media decadence. There's so many forms of communication Uh, the media itself, especially with the advent of social media, has become a kind of wild west of public communication. Uh, So for a public health message, for public health advice to drop within that confused and confusing ecosystem, that already is, you know, kind of concerning and is a recipe for disaster. But it also struck at a time when the public's confidence in the ability of democracies to deliver the goods when it comes to social well-being was also at an all-time low. It seems that we've had a certain rectification on both fronts. There's been a certain return of trust to the ability, to the capacity of the state to deal with these sorts of disasters that has been a kind of reliance on single messages or single sources of messaging from public health officials and from government bodies. Is this a sign of... The hidden strength of democratic govern- government, governance and institutions? Or is there something else? Is there a different story to be told here?
0: Yeah, that's a very hard question to answer, I think, um, Scott. I mean, my own take on this um, is that the weaknesses in democracy are still there, but what we're seeing is actually the politics of fear Uh, playing out. And I think that some of the benefits, the kind of sugar hit that we've seen uh, to the uh, levels of trust in government, levels of trust in experts, could well dissipate within uh, the the coming weeks, months, years. We don't know exactly. But essentially what we have, um, and this is a a long-term process that has brought many Western democracies to roughly the same situation, is a kind of void opening up between the masses And the political class um, and to some extent uh, the state bureaucracy. Uh, Political parties in Australia as in many other countries don't really represent the kind of mass constituencies that they're used to. Um, The government uh, is made up of uh, people within professionalized parties that come from roughly the same social class um, and the kind of voices that we tend to hear in in public discourse tend to be uh, relatively similar. Now All of that, as you said rightly, led us to a point where the levels of trust in our political institutions um, and the level of representation genuinely that people feel that is provided to them uh, by our democracy uh, has has declined quite a bit. And and actually in 2019, uh, according to uh, the annual survey done by the people at the ANU, the levels of trust were actually probably at the historic low. And then comes the pandemic, and suddenly, as you said in your introduction, uh, people are looking to the state to protect them, and the state, which is not so much authoritative anymore because it does not really represent uh, people uh, in the way that perhaps it used to, turns to uh, what you may call more authoritarian practices. You can argue whether those were necessary, but certainly they were done, uh, you know, in in a very uh, unusual manner. And people find comfort in that. They uh, they also uh, were very happy to see the state step in to, you know, uh, support incomes and all the, the other things that were happening. Uh, but whether that's going to be sustained, given that the underlying problems have not been resolved. In fact, if anything, the current crisis is taking us away from a more representative, a more authoritative state, if you may call it that, then... Um, I would expect that things are going to over time, probably we' already seeing the beginning of that, return to um, the situation uh, as we as we saw it before. Hmm. So many elements to this
1: we We talk about the the increased trust that governments have enjoyed from this. I, I feel like that's already dissipated. Uh, the The current conversation certainly in Australia that we have seems to be anger directed at just about every government, that's what's happening especially at the federal government. Um, there's, it's growing, I think, in respect to the New South Wales government, uh, the Victorian government has emerged. It seems relatively unscathed, but has been through its own very rocky periods. And there is is a level of anger at that. Um, there there was this sort of flowering of trust in both government and media, by the way, Mm -hmm. in the early stages of the pandemic. But that, I think. I, I don't. I, I would be surprised if polls are still showing that. Shahar, are there, are there polls still showing that? Because the ones I've seen have, have indicated that that's dropped off.
2: Well, it can, can I also just in, indicate that in the United States, Joe Biden, who we had, actually haven't mentioned on this show, mm-hmm. isn't it wonderful not to be discussing U.S. politics? It's been like some kind of wonderful holiday for the soul. Yeah,
1: but isn't it amazing how we've all decided U.S. politics no longer exists?
2: Anyway, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yes, but you see, this is the interesting thing. Joe Biden, who's been enjoying... I mean, historically record levels of approval, bipartisan approval, which, which is not unusual in these sorts of circumstances. With the advent of the Delta virus or the Delta variant in June, July, his approval ratings have taken quite a sudden hit. It is, it is interesting that the Delta variant seems to be playing havoc with P- and, and, and the lockdowns and the further restrictions that have that have then come on its back, this almost comes at a moment of mass popular or democratic exhaustion and weariness. And so I, I think you're right, Willie. there's a, almost this kind of lashing out at everybody. This was supposed to be over by now. As soon as vaccines got going, this is supposed to be over by now.
0: Ooh. And I think that's precisely because of the point that, that was made before, that essentially... You know there wasn't a great deal of real trust given to the state at that point the state still is this body that floats above uh, a kind of uh, demobilized atomized mass society with very few organic links of any kind to what happens up there um and i think that consequently uh the kind of support the trust the thing that we saw there temporarily uh, are a very very easy to dissipate and and i think the same thing would apply to the media I mean, the media, as you said before, was suffering from its own crisis of legitimacy, uh, and to some extent it rediscovered its voice of authority through the crisis. But in part also because of the kinds of experts that were brought out to speak in the media, to the public, um, and and in in general we saw, certainly in Australia, uh, a preference for experts uh, that uh, were more alarmist in tone, that uh, we're sort of trying to perhaps uh, generate a public health message that would get people behind fairly difficult measures uh, like lockdowns and others. Uh, well, I think that perhaps we, we're also seeing a bit of fatigue setting in there um, and, and maybe we're going to uh, return to or maybe you already are, and certainly in the United States that's been the case, return to a more polarised media environment where uh, you know all these kinds of questions of public health and the various measures are are, are no more than um, just another element in the culture war that we've seen play out for so many years now. So I would say two
1: things to that. One is I'm not sure I can agree that the media just simply privileged experts who are alarmist in tone. I've heard this... Criticism, I know Nick Coatsworth has made a similar sort of point, perhaps not quite in as blunt terms, but um, has said a similar sort of thing. I'm just not sure it it stacks up when you consider what was being said ahead of time and what turned out to be the case. In, in other words, the people that I think are being described as alarmist have turned out to be right over and over and over again. And I think that's because what the nature of a pandemic is it's alarming, and it that classic comment that I heard early on in the pandemic, which is, if things go well, it will look like we've overreacted. And I think that the, the problem is that not actually everything has gone well. I remember talking to experts in the the build up to that second wave in Melbourne last year, who were saying, oh, I think things are actually fine, and then other experts who were saying, No, Melbourne's in trouble. And guess who was right? And that. So A, there was a range of experts there, but B, I find it hard to identify this suite of experts that have been proven to be wrongly alarmist over the period. The most I think you could say is there have been those who have been overzealous on strategies of elimination or whatever, and we could have an argument about that, but I'm not sure that the alarmist criticism of the experts that the media turned to really stacks up. If anything, I think what happened was, what the media did, was it ran into its own epistemic humility and said, oh God, we can't just opine about this in an ignorant way in the way that we often Mm -hmm. do. So -hmm. we need to find someone else who can do the opining for us. And it turns out the only people who have anything to say that actually sounds like they know what they're talking about tend to be people who know what they're talking about (laughs) because they've spent however long studying this in their lives. And so the media enjoyed that. But that brings me to the second point I want to make, which is that Yes, there is clearly a disconnection now, a distance that has emerged between the political class and the population, and you could argue between the media class and the population. But I would I'm reluctant, although I'm often very happy to swing um, sledgehammers at those two institutions. I'm reluctant to blame them for that entirely, because we have to acknowledge that this is happening alongside a complete fracturing of our informational landscape. Uh, of our social and community bonds and therefore the coherence of our society. And much of the dynamics that have been driving that have been going for a long time and are digital. And so in a context like that where there is no water cooler anymore, there is no singular point of focus where you can actually have a proper town hall conversation where you have a sufficient kind of moral slash cultural slash epistemic consensus to form a basis on which to have a public conversation, then of course you're going to find this fracture that exists between the political class and, and the public. Because, well, you know what it looks like when that doesn't happen? It looks like you, what you see in America with um, governors in certain states banning masks, for example. I mean, they're connected to a really important part or a really big part of a community. It's a community whose epistemic world seems contained by Facebook posts or something like that. In other words, this is not something that I think is within the control of the political class, that they can somehow make themselves of the people because the people themselves have become – the people themselves isn't a thing anymore. It's it's hurting cats. So with that splintering, which we've discussed a lot on the show – You lose coherence. And so you then have to make a choice. Do you want like closeness and representation or do you want coherence? And I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think this is an abiding crisis for democracy that I don't think is easy to solve. It may even be insoluble. But I'm not entirely sure that I would choose incoherent representation at the expense of coherence. Wow. How about
0: that? Go ahead, Shahan. sorry to to jump in there, but I think there is another issue that we haven't uh, covered so far and relates actually to the same kind of issue. So it's not just about whether the political class is connected to the people, but it also is about whether people sitting at the top have the state, you know, the apparatus of government and everything around that, that they can actually mobilize in order to address problems like the pandemic effectively. And um, I think that uh, this is another aspect of the deterioration of, of our states and our polities more generally uh, over the last several decades, is that uh, the kinds of state structures that uh, people like uh, um, elected politicians sit above, sit above, they're not actually capable of doing as much as we think they should be able to do. Um, there's been a long-term process of uh, you know, state capacity being hollowed out. Um, there are these structures there that seem like they should be able to do something. There are plans, there are all sorts of arrangements in place. But when you actually look underneath and you see what's actually available, is there anyone there that actually is funded, has the capacity uh, to do something like, for instance, respond to a crisis on the scale of this pandemic? And, and often uh, these structures collapse fairly quickly when put to the test. And what happened in Australia and many other countries is, is a clear example, because although we've been preparing allegedly uh, for at least 15 to 20 years for a pandemic, we had all the plans in place. When the pandemic actually hit, literally, I wouldn't say none, but very little of those plans were were put into practice. And the measures that we used in order to respond to the pandemic were ad hoc emergency measures, they're border closures, uh, and they're also... Um, large-scale lockdowns, and neither of these measures were actually in the plans, and and they're actually not advocated even by the World Health Organisation because they're seen as uh, too severe in the lead-up to the pandemic.
1: Yeah, but the World Health Organisation was proven wrong on that.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, they they got everything right, uh, but the point being that they were deployed because the mechanisms that were in place were inadequate, um, and when governments then attempted to retrofit, to recreate some kind of a response after the fact, they, they struggled and, and they continue to struggle now. So there is a deeper issue here. It's not just about, you know, whether the political uh, class is representative, that that is one issue, but there's also the issue of whether it can actually, whether the tools that it needs are even at its disposal. And this is, again, a long-term process that we can discuss a bit more if you're interested. How do we get to a point where... Um, They're sitting on top of kind of a shell of a state, you know, that has a capacity for certain forms of interventions. It certainly has the capacity to mobilize the police and the military when necessary. But a lot of other things just don't seem to work all that well.
1: Sorry. So can you name a country that wasn't a shell of a state that did respond well?
0: Well, you can give examples, for instance, of what uh, happened in East Asia and countries like uh, Korea is probably the best example um, and, um, you know, there are several reasons for that. One of them is the fact that they dealt with the Middle East uh, respiratory syndrome uh, not long before COVID hit, and they could sort of see the problems there and react to them. Uh, but when the crisis hit, the, the government was actually able to mobilize considerable capacity, for instance, in the form of, uh, you know, very uh, sophisticated contract tracing systems, uh, hospitals, all sorts of stuff like that. that. Uh, was geared towards responding to a crisis on that scale, uh, and they did manage to get on top of the outbreaks, at least temporarily, without resorting to large-scale lockdowns uh, that uh, were used in other countries. Now, they have their own problems. I'm not, I'm not trying to make it sound like some kind of nirvana. Um, they, they are struggling to uh, vaccinate the population, and there are all sorts of issues, but countries that had those capacities were able to do different things. They had different options.
2: We we need to reset the nods to pick up the Yes, you're listening to the mind reader. If you've just
1: joined us, Uh, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co host. That voice belongs to Shahar Hamiri, who's an associate professor in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland.
2: Um, Shahar, I'm, I'm kind of broadly sympathetic. With the with the narrative of the hollowing out of modern or, or of the modern state that you're describing, and I think one of the things that's been a fascinating dimension of learning that we have seen over the last eighteen months in this country is the uh, the moving away from the federal government's traditional, uh, I guess, at least over the last two two and a half decades. Reliance on, say, private consultancy firms, private service providers, uh, um, uh, contracted uh, um, uh, security services, and and so forth, and the reemergence of certain forms of state capability in enforcing and implementing not just public health orders, uh, but also uh, uh, responses to the pandemic. That, that's all been really, I mean, so even the appearance, for instance, of the ADF on the streets in Western Sydney, I mean, there's something, okay, there's something slightly chilling about it, but there's also something heartening when the alternative might be the use of, say, private security. Um.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> is that okay well no i i mean i guess you're right
1: <laughs> you okay, said a lot like so, but uh, sure
2: yes i know so thank you i was just going to say and, and please f- feel free to respond but one of the things that is absolutely going to follow this pandemic is a period of of increased austerity uh given the extraordinary amounts of debt that have been taken on by federal and state governments if, if the state has learned some of its lessons and it's begun to expand accordingly and to try to resume some of its capabilities, do you really have any confidence that it's going to retain that expanded model of the state that people are going to want to see that expanded model of the state into the future? Or don't you think we'll have as soon as we re-enter ordinary times, we're going to have that massive contraction of the state's capabilities once again?
0: Well, firstly, um, I would dispute that we would need to enter a period of austerity, given that pretty much all of the debt, or almost all of the debt that is owed by governments in Australia, is owed in our own currency, uh, which our central bank can continue to issue. So this is entering into a realm of, uh, I guess, debate in monetary economics. Theory, yeah. And, yep. On on whether um, debt that is issued that is owed to your own central bank and your own currency actually needs to be repaid. Uh, we know that our governments, uh, both left and right persuasions have been arguing this for a long time and then the crisis came and we uh, we actually learned that money does grow on trees, in fact, um, and and um, we can uh, continue to uh, expand our money orchards. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm belaboring that metaphor a little well, bit. Well,
1: I mean, I, now that they're made of plastic, it's probably more likely grown in labs, but I, I take it. Oh point. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: lab-grown money. So that's, that's a question in itself. Um, but my concern uh, here is that if we are going to grow state capacity, that needs to grow hand in hand with also growing the state's accountability and responsiveness um, to people, because uh, otherwise the risk is that you are growing those capacities of the state, but you're doing that in, in a way that is going to become increasingly authoritarian. Now, you know, obviously, we all hope that that's not going to happen. Um, but if you just do one of those, but without the other... Uh, then you may not like where you end up. Can I just Mm -hmm. on that shift very slightly?
1: I wonder about whether, so, so let's take as our starting point that we agree that the measures that are available for responding to COVID are by and large undemocratic measures, right? I think the real question is to what extent do they become by analogy extended into post pandemic life? So, you know, something like the proliferation of QR codes everywhere, it might be hard to imagine how you would find an application for that. But something like, you know, other forms of contact tracing or if we were to decide that QR codes are, are too um, too unreliable and lockdowns with increasingly fast variants are just going to keep happening and the only way that we can avoid lockdowns is to use phone data, for example, which we could, the, the technology exists, you could do that. And then you've got perfect contact tracing more or less immediately. Once you took a step like that, it would be more, it would be irresistible, wouldn't it, to unfurl similar sorts of measures or, you know, measures that are anchored in a similar kind of thinking for all manner of other harms, wouldn't it? Like, you know, um, pedophilia or terrorism or or whatever. In other words, have we broken the seal of democratic or liberal constraint and, Beyond the questions of government spending, is there a way, can, can an emergency measure effectively be contained to a genuine emergency, I suppose, is what I'm asking? Or are we now witnessing a genuine sea change in democracy and that, that genie can't be put back in the bottle?
0: Well, I guess the question is also one, uh, and if I can sort of take a sidestep there. Uh, democracy is built on on trust. You know, th- there needs to be a trust between the government uh, and the people with whom, uh, that that invest the government with power that represent the people. Now, if you lose that trust um, and if your permanent assumption from government is that the people are going to be doing the wrong thing, and and that seems to be to some extent an assumption that underpins a lot of the emergency measures that we're seeing today. If, If that is your basic assumption, and once you extrapolate from that, then I think you are already at the point where uh, democracy, to some extent, is gone. And uh, if that is where we're going to be heading after the crisis, then I think that's very troubling. And, and the problem with the crisis is there's no clear end point to the crisis in a way that you would have, uh, say, in a, in a kind of conventional war. There's no victory march here, right? Um, essentially, we're going to be debating for years to come, perhaps, what was the endpoint of the crisis? And therefore... If we accept measures like that now, it's going to be very difficult to know when would be the right time to drop them.
1: Yeah, it's like counterterrorism legislation.
2: It's the same debate. Really. Precisely. Yeah. precisely. Yeah. Um, the, there's one thing, though, that's been kind of rattling around in my mind ever since you first came in, onto the show, Shahar, uh, when you mentioned the kind of politics of fear. I don't know if either of you recall Judith Sklar's uh, extraordinary diagnosis of of what she described as the liberalism of fear. the The idea is is that what holds liberalism, which is a political order which does not have the internal capability of achieving solidarity or internal coherence, what holds it together, is shared fear of uh, of the abuse, the overreach of state power. So liberalism tends to insist on smaller forms of government, less forms of state intervention, uh, fewer police, uh, authoritative powers and so on. Um, The only thing that then breaks through that fear of state power is the fear of another threat. If that threat, for instance, is an external power in the instances of war, if it's a somewhat external, somewhat internal Power, like terrorism, uh, or if it's a pandemic when the greatest fear is of death and there really is no other good that we're trying to achieve or reach for other than the prolongation of individual lives, uh, then within liberalism's internal logic, there's a kind of deference then – to what she described as both the consequentialist logic of authoritarian government and also to what she described as instrumental rationality. In other words, the ends justify the means and there's a kind of calculus of safety, security, prosperity that needs to be gotten into there. I guess the, the, the problem I, – and I think that diagnosis is absolutely right. The issue, I guess, is when all that matters is getting through the other side of the pandemic. We're willing to accept anything that the that the state does in order to get us there. We're willing to confine our units of measure to either those of public health or economic rationality. Then what gets lost in the middle is the developing – Of the antibodies, the internal antibodies of solidarity, mutual deference, mutual sacrifice that really are the conditions of possibility for democratic political orders. So I I guess I'm I'm wondering if that's not also one of the things that really does need to be given serious attention, uh, both at a policy level but also from the experts that are being constantly relied on by by the state.
1: Last word to you, Shahar, and then we'll wrap.
0: Yeah, I think that um, the one thing that we need to maybe think about here is whether liberals are actually really all that interested now in engaging with mass politics. Uh, After the upheavals of the last few years, in many countries, certainly in the United States and the UK, we've seen uh, liberals actually being kind of taken by surprise, shocked by the upheavals that they're facing, you know, Brexit, Trump, all the rest of it, and sort of retreating into a world where they are actually quite happy to accept an external force to come in, whether that is... Facebook or Twitter to police what people can say, or whether it is some kind of uh, government uh, body that would actually ensure that the world, as they would like to see it, remains in place. And it's not sort of overtaken by this scary uh, mass politics, this angry politics, anti-politics that we're seeing emerging from all directions. So... Is it really maybe something that is kind of internal to the liberalism and how liberalism understands the world? So we've ended both democracy and
1: liberalism on this show, which I think means (laughs) it's time for us to finish. Um, Shahar, thank you so much for helping us out today. It's been great to have access to you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's Shahar Hamiri, who is Associate Professor in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. We'll see you next week.